Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. In this episode, Seduction and Scandal in High Society. But before we dive into the story, I would like to pose you a question. Here is the context. Imagine you are browsing through some British Foreign Office files. You come across a story that piques your interest. Sir Coleridge Kennard, diplomat, involvement in divorce case. The file is from 1909, the height of the Edwardian era, a short interlude in British history between the death of Queen Victoria in 1901 and the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, a period of burgeoning social change and, for the wealthy elite, taking their cue from fun-loving King Edward VII, a balmy era of fashion and fun. So, an Edwardian divorce scandal, which the Foreign Office weighed into, Intriguing. You read the first few pages. The file is mostly made up of handwritten half-scribbled letters and sharply worded telegrams, but it also includes a printed statement of facts written by the woman at the centre of the scandal, Edith Cornelia Buckley, known as Yoy. This is a time when women did not have the right to vote, when women's rights in every sphere were negligible, from education and work to marriage and divorce. You read a little further. Ah, that's disappointing. You find yourself disagreeing with Yoy's actions. You remind yourself she was living in a deeply patriarchal society, but even so, you cannot quell the discomfort. You broaden your research out into Yoy's later life. And there's the rub. Yoy would, 
a little over ten years after the story plays out, become a fascist. She would write glowing newspaper articles about Mussolini, describing him as a really great man. She would even meet with him. So here at last is my question. What, dear listener, would you do? Would you still tell this story? How do you present the sensual woman now, knowing that later she would become a supporter, a mouthpiece, for evil? I decided, after much debate, that yes, I should tell the story. For one thing, to only tell the stories of uncomplicated so-called good people would not be reflective of the reality of human history. The people in the story are, almost universally, unlikable, but their story of lust, power and shame is fascinating. And I also wondered, could we find clues to the person Yoi would become, the hateful ideologies she would espouse, in the behaviour and words of her younger self? Perhaps. There is no sharp divide between the Edwardian age and the age of totalitarianism. The people who created and supported fascism in the 1920s and 30s were, for the most part, already living in the 1900s. By 1909, when this story is largely set, Hitler was a homeless artist in Vienna. Mussolini was already involving himself in politics. In 1909, the fascists of tomorrow were the Edwardians of today, and one of those people was Joy Buckley. In 1908, Joy was 31, and had been married to a Captain James Buckley for 12 years. The couple had two children, an eight-year-old girl and a four-year-old boy, and split their time between their London house in plush Norfolk Square and the Buckley ancestral family estate in rural Wales. A photograph of Yoy from a few years earlier reveals a slender woman, hair piled high in the fashion of the time, her serious eyes looking straight at the camera. About her husband, I was able to find out very little. Other than that, he spent long spells away on business, and claimed, when he filed for divorce, to have believed himself to be in a happy marriage. If it was, then any happiness Yoy felt paled in the face of the passion that would soon engulf her. In early December, Yoy met Sir Coleridge Kennard. Sir Coleridge, known as Roy, had recently entered the diplomatic service, and was a fashion-conscious young dandy. At twenty-three, he was almost a decade younger than Yoy, and was enjoying all the advantages of being a good-looking, wealthy, titled young man in an age for the affluent of indulgence. A portrait of 1904 captures him striking an affected relaxed pose on a settee, his eyebrows arched in amusement, his lightly tussled hair swept back and donning an exuberant necktie. Roy's mother apparently hated this portrait of her son as the dandy personified. Roy's life was a paradox of privilege and tragedy. His father had died on a sea voyage when Roy was only a year old. Four years later, his grandfather had been on the brink of being raised to a baronetcy when he also died. Queen Victoria instead bestowed the title on Roy. He was but five years old at the time, making him the youngest person in history to receive a baronetcy, or so the newspapers obsequiously reported throughout Roy's life. The Kennard family wealth was held in trust for Roy until he turned twenty-five. Until then, he was dependent for funds on his mother and paternal grandmother. For a few years, Roy had a stepfather, the Irish nationalist politician James Lawrence Carew, but he too died suddenly when Roy was eighteen. So Roy's upbringing was one of wealth, privilege and expectation, but also of loss. Captain Buckley was aware of his wife's new friendship, 
he returned to their London house one day in December, 1908, to find Roy there. Buckley did not like the boyish fop, but saw nothing sinister in his presence. By his own account, from the later divorce trial, he even invited Roy to dinner. But unbeknownst to Buckley, Roy had become infatuated with his wife. According to Yoy's statement of facts, within weeks of meeting her, he was begging her to leave her husband and children and run away with him. He made regular visits in broad daylight to her house. Two of Yoy's servants stepped forward at the divorce trial to testify they had seen Roy enter Yoy's bedroom. They did not say why they had not told Captain Buckley of this at the time. Somehow, Yoy managed to keep her husband in ignorance of her affair. Roy was less discreet. He told, of all people, his mother. And his mother was not happy. In March, she paid a visit to the Foreign Office. As the widow of an MP, Mrs Carew had high-powered friends. Among them was the diplomat, Sir Charles Harding, the most senior civil servant at the Foreign Office, and thereby Roy's boss. Harding agreed with Mrs Carew. The couple must be separated. Exactly why Harding agreed is not clear. But as evidenced by his letters and telegrams, which we will come to, Harding would invest a lot of time and energy into trying to split the couple up which seems an odd preoccupation for the most senior civil servant of the Foreign Office, who had, one assumes, many more important responsibilities on his shoulders. Perhaps he was close to Mrs Carew, or perhaps he regarded Roy's affair as most inappropriate for a member of the diplomatic service. Whatever the reason, after his interview with Mrs Carew, he ordered Roy to go to Rome, to serve there as an attaché at the embassy. But Roy refused to go. He redoubled his fervent pleadings that Yoy ran away with him at once. He even bought train tickets. He hated the diplomatic service, he told her. He was only in it because of his mother. He wanted out. But Yoy was not ready. So, on the 31st of March, 1909, Roy left for Italy. A daily stream of telegrams flew from Rome to London. Pleas for Yoy to run away with him. Begging notes that she must come to see him. In May, the Buckleys usually decamped to their home in Wales for the summer, but this year Yoy pleaded ill health, and asked instead if she could go to Paris to recover and visit a young lady friend. Her husband agreed, and the couple parted on the understanding that Yoy would join her family in Wales by the end of June. By May 15th, Yoy was in Paris, but there was no friend. Instead, Yoy had put some distance between herself and her family to make a decision. Should she leave her children for a new life with her passionate young lover, or should she break with the man she had, after all, only known for half a year? As the barrage of telegrams continued, she fell ill with a fever. In response to Roy's messages, she wrote that she wanted to be with him, but did not want to go away then. She was too ill to decide what to do, and, at any rate, wanted to go back to London before going away with him. Yoy's application of the brakes sent Roy into a paroxysm of anxiety. "'You must put out of your head any idea of going back to London,' he wired her on June 5th. Over the following week, his messages to Yoy reached a fever pitch of desperation. "'If you go back now, I shall torture myself to death. I have reached and known all that I can stand. And another period of waiting would kill us both. It could bring no other decision but only pain again, and I cannot be without you.' The Foreign Office was unaware that Yoy had left England, or that Roy's obsession had, if anything, intensified since they were separated. But his boss was not completely naive. 
in early April, doubting that Roy would meekly get stuck into work, Harding had sent a telegram to the ambassador in Rome, ordering him not to grant Roy any leave should he request it. It was a redundant instruction, because Roy did not wait for permission to leave his post. He simply disappeared. On June 16th, the embassy in Rome telegraphed Harding to inform him that Kennard left Friday without leave, leaving message he was called away on account of illness. He gave address, 20 Rue Jacob, Paris. The 16th was a Wednesday, so Roy had absconded a full five days earlier. The reason for the delay in reporting his departure was that Roy had left behind a message saying he would be back by the following Monday morning. Apparently, he was believed. Harding was furious. He immediately sent a telegram to the British Embassy in Paris, asking the ostentatiously named secretary, Sir Lancelot Carnegie, to please try to see him, point out serious nature of his action in leaving without permission and in not returning when ordered, and urge him to do so at once. You may tell him from me that I am much surprised after the assurances which he gave me before leaving. Sir Lancelot was quickly on the case. He set off for Rue Jacob, an elegant street just south of the Seine. Two days later, he sent Harding his report. On the receipt of your private telegram, I went off at once to 20 Rue Jacob to try to find Kennard. The concierge professed total ignorance, but his wife said that Mademoiselle Somebody had taken in a telegram for him and directed me to the door of his apartment. The servant there said she had never heard of the gentleman and shut the door in my face. Mrs. Concierge, who was sympathetic, recommended me to try next door, number 22, a squalid hotel. The landlady at once admitted that Kennard was there, but had just gone out with some friends, so I left a note asking when and where I could see him. As I got no reply, I went again yesterday to the hotel, and was told by the landlady that no one called Kennard was staying there, and that she had misunderstood me the day before. She gave me back my letter, apparently unopened. I then, as a last resort, sent a petit bleu, a telegram card, to number 20, which has, however, produced no result. So I am afraid that I can do no more. It seemed Roy was toying with them. He had left an address, but either had never gone there, or had persuaded the neighbours to deny seeing him. Whatever the truth, Lancelot Carnegie's investigations were, although he did not know it, a complete waste of time. For Roy had long since left Paris. He had reached Yoy on Saturday the 12th of June. On Sunday 13th, three days before his masters in Rome reported him missing, Yoy and Roy boarded a train for Munich. By the 16th, when Sir Lancelot was ordered to Rue Jacob, Roy and Yoy were over 600 miles away in Vienna. On the day they reached Vienna, the couple declared to the world what they had done. Roy posted a resignation letter to Harding. Dear Sir Charles, It is with great regret that I must ask you to accept my resignation. I can only apologise for the failure that I have been. But I have tried and have failed. That same day, Yoy penned a brief letter to her husband. I have gone away with Coleridge Kennard. When you are angry and bitter, remember I have left my children and everything. The law in England at the time dictated that if a couple divorced due to a wife's infidelity, then she was denied not just custody of any children, but all access to them. Incidentally, no such punishment was meted out to adulterous husbands. So why had Yoi chosen to leave her children for a man she had barely known for six months? 
I don't have enough information to conjecture. The contents of the Foreign Office file, the letters, the telegrams, and Yoi's own statement of facts, do not say a word about her life and marriage before she met Roy. And I will leave you to draw your own conclusions about her relationship with Roy based on the letters quoted in this episode. Whatever her reasons, her decision to run away, now finally made, apparently did not rest easy with her. The couple travelled further east into Austria-Hungary, leaving Vienna for the mountains of present-day Slovakia. Here, Joy attempted suicide. She was only saved from the lethal effects of a drug overdose by the intervention of a local doctor. As Joy recovered, a telegram from Harding finally caught up with them. It ordered Roy's immediate return to London. It was time to face the music. The couple turned around and began the long journey back to England. They reached London on the 11th of July and took adjoining rooms in the Grand Hotel Russell. As soon as they arrived, Roy headed to the Foreign Office for a dressing down. His resignation was refused. Instead, he was pulled into several meetings over the following days. According to Yoy's statement of facts, these meetings were attended not only by Sir Charles Harding, but also by a solicitor representing Roy's mother. Sir George Lewis had earned his stripes resolving many a society scandal. So renowned was he as the fix-it man for the errant members of high society that he is even mentioned in a Sherlock Holmes story. It is worth reminding ourselves at this point that Roy was a very young man. He is referred to as the boy in several letters by people ranging from his grandmother to fellow diplomatic staff. He had only been with the Foreign Office for a few months. He had done no work of note and had no profile to speak of in diplomatic circles. From all this, I would have assumed that any fallout for the Foreign Office from a scandal involving Roy could have been quietly contained. And yet the most senior civil servant was involving himself personally, again, in this case. One can only guess, but my bet is that this was due to the influence of Roy's mother. Whatever the reasons for the Foreign Office's interest in the affair, the aim of their interest was clear. Roy was to be kept as far away from Roy as possible. Within two days, he was ordered to a new posting, this time at the Tehran legation in Iran. Roy was not keen, but he was backed into a corner. Roy told Joy that if he did not go, he would be dismissed in such a way as no one had ever been dismissed before, and that the consequence would be permanent disgrace, such that he could never live in England or meet English people. And so Roy meekly agreed to go to Iran he was given just a couple of weeks to organise his affairs, principally to ensure that Yoi would be all right in the way of money in his absence, and to set the wheels in motion for her divorce. Such was his concern to ensure both of these matters were handled properly, that he and Yoi engaged solicitors to work on their behalf. On the 13th of July, Roy's solicitors wrote to reassure Yoi's solicitors that Roy was desirous of doing everything that is honourable and fair towards the lady, for whom he entertains great affection. Ten days later, in a bid to hurry things along, Roy brazenly wrote directly to Yoi's husband. Dear Captain Buckley, I am writing to ask if you would be so good as to let me be served with a writ for divorce as soon as possible. Roy informed Yoi's solicitors the next day that he had been assured by Harding that if he was named co-respondent in the divorce, then he could not remain with the Foreign Office. In other words, the sooner the divorce was granted, and the sooner Roy was publicly branded an adulterer, the sooner Roy would be sacked, and could return from Tehran to marry Yoi. This, he told his solicitors, 
was his one desire. Writing to them on his last morning in London, he begged them to do all they could to expedite Yoy's divorce. Yoy is all I care about in the world. I beg you to do all in your power to get Yoy free, so that we can be free and get married. The next day, he rendezvoused with Yoy in Brussels, and the couple travelled together as far as Nuremberg. It was a heated, emotional journey. Despite the intensity of Roy's emotions, Yoy still harboured doubts about his commitment, as she recounted later in letters and her statement. Perhaps because he was so young. Perhaps precisely because his adoration was so overwhelming. On their journey, she asked him to let her know truthfully if he had any doubts in his mind that they were making a mistake. Because if so, she still had a chance of returning to her family. But Roy was adamant. More than adamant. He was aghast. He said if Yoy even thought of returning to Buckley, then he would kill himself. He insisted on the spot on writing this down on paper, so that Yoy could always have it with her as a reminder of his devotion when they were apart. Yoy, I want you to remember whenever things seem difficult and you are unhappy, that if you went back to Jim, or if ever I knew that you had thought of doing so, it would mean my life. My only desire and intention is that we be married. Whatever people say or do, you must always be sure that I am working with this one end view. Forever and always, your Roy. Reassured of Roy's devotion, and an expectation that they would soon reunite and wed, Yoy parted ways with him at Nuremberg. He travelled on to Iran. She, after respiting in a couple of spa cities, travelled to Rome, and moved in to Roy's apartment. A year earlier, she hadn't even met Sir Coleridge Roy Kennard. Now she was living in his apartment in Rome, waiting for her divorce to go through the courts, and waiting for her lover to be released from his posting. From Iran, Roy continued to harangue his solicitors to get the divorce moving as swiftly as possible. Mrs Buckley and I are to be married as soon as possible, he wrote in one letter from early September. Do everything in your power as my representative to make this possible as soon and as easily as possible. His regular love letters to Yoy were now interspersed with telegrams, strategizing on how to accelerate matters. If the case could be made more public, publicised in the newspapers perhaps, then maybe the Foreign Office would become anxious to get rid of their disreputable employee more quickly. As the year wound down, Roy riled against the forces endeavouring to keep them apart. His mother and grandmother, he informed Yoy, were using every threat, every device possible to prevent their marriage. He never specified exactly what his mother was doing, but wrote in early December that he had just found out to what depth of vileness people have gone. They wanted to poison Yoy's mind against him, but they would not succeed. They were determined to marry. For God's sake, he begged Yoy, trust no one but our friends. Then, that same month, Roy's hopes of being released from the Foreign Office were dashed. On December 5th, he wrote that he had been told that the divorce will make no difference to my position in the diplomatic service. He would be compelled to serve a full two years in Tehran. Little did Roy know, but in sending him to Iran, Harding had never intended to set Roy free, divorce or no divorce. On the 4th of October, he had sent a private telegram to Britain's envoy in Iran, Sir George Barclay, informing him, Divorce proceedings against Kennard are expected shortly. There is no necessity for his return home on this account, and we mean to keep him to his pledge of remaining two years in Persia. Please not to allow him to leave without previous reference to Foreign Office in event of his application or resignation. Though frustrated at this betrayal, Roy did his utmost to reassure Yoy that it would not stop them being together. 
Little one, all along I have known that my life, however it may be, must be yours always. We are and always shall remain one. Whatever the F.O. says or do, nothing will ever alter that, nor my desire and intention that we shall be married at last and live together. But all Roy's words could not change the fact that two years was a long time for Yoy to wait. Once the divorce went through, she would be a divorcee, a social outcast. So Yoy took matters into her own hands and appealed to a higher authority. Not Roy's boss Harding, but his boss's boss, the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey. On the final day of 1909, she wrote Grey a letter. Having explained that she had that day heard from Roy that the Foreign Office would not allow him to resign, she made her appeal. If I must go on living alone for an indefinite period of time, it will mean that I shall kill myself, which under the circumstances would be the only thing left for me to do. She was in Rome, she wrote, only because of his desperate appeals to her. He said over and over again, and has written often since, that my return meant his life, and it was because I felt that to be true that I have borne six months of torture. She finished by urging Grey, My only hope is you will understand from what depths I have written this letter, and that you will help me to clear up what seems to be a mystery. I cannot believe that the F.O. would force one of their people to behave in such an utterly dishonourable way. The letter was dispatched, and Yoy spent the weeks of January anxiously waiting for a reply. About halfway through the month she received another letter from Roy, dated January 1st. It was full of his usual declarations of love and hopes for a speedy divorce, but then a bolt from the blue. On January 15th, Yoy received a telegram from friends in London. They had heard shocking rumours. Roy intended to defend himself in the divorce case. In other words, he was contesting Captain Buckley's allegation of adultery. If Roy's defence succeeded, the divorce would not go through. Yoy was thrown into confusion, but worse news followed. There were other rumours, her friends said. Rumours spread all over London by Roy's friends. Roy had changed his mind. Even if the divorce went through, he no longer wanted to marry her. Yoy was incredulous. After all that had passed between them, had she been naively taken in? No, this was just another malicious attempt to separate them. Roy could not cast her aside now. Could he? Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. Part 2 of the story of seduction and scandal in high society will be released on Thursday, 10th of February. So you don't miss it, please subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, check out Archive Sleuth on Instagram for portraits of Yoi and Roy. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would be fantastic if you could spare just a few seconds to rate or review the podcast on your favourite podcast app and spread the word to your friends and family. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. The file, Sir Coleridge Kennard, Diplomat, Involvement in Divorce Case, is held at the National Archives UK. It is available online in the collection Secret Files from World Wars to Cold War from Coherent Digital. Additional research was done using the British Newspaper Archive. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod. 
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.